Welcome, everybody. It's the Check My Brain podcast. And uh, give me a five-star review. I say that a lot. But, you know, I can't be the only one giving myself five-star reviews. <laughs> no, I, I really do appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback I've gotten so far with these podcasts. Uh, we're going to talk a little more sports today. And I uh, got a chance to talk to Russ Cohen, which you can find him on uh, social media at Sportsology. Russ is uh, based out of the New York general area, like that area between New York, Jersey, Philly, around that area. He's been there for a long time. And we talked uh, we talked on a previous podcast about the Mets a little bit, but also about a lot of other players as well. And uh, so he's got a couple of books. First of all, uh, promote them. Baseball's Best Rookies, Pioneers of Baseball. He has a book on the Mets called Numbers Don't Lie. He writes for Full Press Baseball. And uh, he's also heard on NHL radio. So uh, Russ is a really good guy. I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation I had. We talked a little bit about not just the Mets, but we talked about uh, baseball ballparks and the locations of parks and everything and places that we've gone to. So uh, it was a cool conversation. We did talk Mets, and we talked uh, uh, about some of the great rookies who played the game. So I hope you enjoy this uh, this one. Yes, it's another baseball podcast, but... If it's called Check My Brain, that's what's on my mind. Uh, in the off season, I'm really only watching, or even during the season, during the 2020, the the abridged season of 2020 in baseball. You can ask my wife. All I did was watch old baseball. There's that there's that uh, series that's on MLB Network where they'd say baseball's best seasons, and it was funny because she would walk in uh, from whether she's grocery shopping or she was working from home and says. All right, what year from the 90s are you watching? And I said, no, 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 this is 88. I'm watching baseball 1988. So it was always like a big thing. I watched more baseball from 1992 than I did from 2020 in 2020. So I always thought that was interesting. But we got into all that conversation with Russ Cohen today. Sportsology, go follow him and check out his books and his writings that are out there. My conversation with Russ Cohen. By the way, joined by uh, Russ Cohen here. He is the, uh, you can check him out, Sportsology on uh, Twitter and his website, Sportsology. You can uh, listen to him on NHL radio. Uh, He has a bunch of books out, uh, Baseball's Best Rookies, Pioneers of Baseball, Numbers Don't Lie. He also writes for Full Press Baseball. By the way, before I I get to more of uh, uh, more baseball, and I really want to get into talking about the rookies and some of the great Mets uh, players over time. Uh, besides just the you know Tom Seaver that we had mentioned, but I wanted to ask you about New York sports in general. This is me being a novice. This is me being kind of yeah. I, uh, I I'm somebody who looks at uh, baseball for like that have multiple markets. So I'm like, how does one in Chicago grow up being a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan? Now my mother's from Chicago. And my mother and my grandfather were the Cubs fans because they loved Ron Santo, right. they loved Billy Williams, they loved Ron Hundley, and everything. And then my grandmother and my aunt were White Sox fans. I don't know why. I mean, this is and this is before they wore the goofy shorts and the Bill Veck years of the softball uniforms. But uh, I, I've always wondered what the is there like a pattern in New York of somebody that's like I'm a Jets fan, I'm a Mets fan. And I'm a Knicks fan, or I'm a Knicks fan, Giants, Yankees. Is there something along that, or is this just kind of like an amalgamation? You also have three 
hockey teams in the area. So who chooses who's a Rangers fan? Do you have to be on Long Island to be an Islanders fan? Do you have to live in Jersey for so long to be a Devils fan? How does the fandom in New York City work? If you're a New York fan that you have to be this, you have to be that, or can you just go like, hey, I'll be a Yankee fan and then I like the, you know, I like the Jets and I like the Islanders. I mean, like, what is uh, that? I'm really confused. Okay. So most times, and I would say until about 1984, five and then until again there was a break and then until the 90s the late 90s uh 2000s when the Mets had a little run and recent most of the time if you walked around New York City you would see mostly Yankee hats that didn't mean they were all Yankee fans that just meant they just wore that hat because they like a winner and they wanted to be a part of a winner and it's easy I always say it's easy to root for a team that's got all those championships so but what happens is if you grew up on Long Island like I did, uh, and I grew up in the Mets era of actually becoming a team, it's almost my exact timeline in life, you were a Mets fan. So then if you were a Mets fan, you were a Jets fan because the Jets played at Shea Stadium too. So then those two were linked together. Then you're generally an Islanders fan because, again, Long Island, Islanders, those three, and everybody was a Knicks fan unless you were – you know, an ABA fan like I was of the Nets, but still the Knicks were my number one team. But I went to a lot of Nets games because they were close by and Dr. J was playing. Like I, I saw a lot of Dr. J and why wouldn't I, right? So he, he was probably my favorite player at the time, even though I was more a Knicks fan. So, so there's that. And, but for me, I was actually a Ranger fan because the Islanders moved in a year after I became a, a Ranger fan, 72 Rangers is really when I started watching hockey. I was watching baseball from the very onset, football early on, but hockey, not so much, not in my household. So I liked the Rangers first. They made it to the Stanley Cup. They lost to the Bruins. The Islanders move in right after that, but I'm a Ranger fan on the island. So you could even look at my high school yearbook and people rip me for it because, you know, the Islanders are winning Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup. Every day I wake up and I open the paper and Mike Bossy scored and two goals and Trache has got three assists and you know, that's where, I, but that's how it sort of got carved out for me. But most everybody was a Knicks fan. Then, then the Yankees, the Yankees and giants, Mets and uh, jets. That's pretty much. And then again, the giants a long time ago played at Yankee stadium too. Yeah, and then because you had the Jets join the league, I mean, obviously the Giants had been around, the Yankees had been around, the Rangers had been around, and then you eventually have the Islanders, but then all of those teams had some kind of place in the sun for a little bit. You had the obviously yes. the Super Bowl three with Namath, you uh, with with the Jets. Then you had those Islanders years with Al Arbor, and then yeah. you had obviously the the Mets of. 86, the Mets of 69, and then the Mets of the early two, late 90s, early 2000s were pretty good. But outside of that, it just and seems Knicks, that... And the, Knicks are, and the Knicks are 69 and 73. I saw both of those, and I proudly walked away from the Knicks maybe like 10 years ago and never looked back, and <laughs> they've really not, they've really not gotten that, that much closer. I think they were in the finals that one time, but I didn't really think they were going to win. So, yeah, they all had that... You got to remember, and that's all at a time where I was growing up, right? That was all during my childhood. All I experienced was winning. And then after that, it got, yeah. after like 73, it started drying up for a long time. 
Yeah, because then you, I mean, you had the Yankees ended up uh, coming back with the Bronxes burning, and uh, you know the Billy, yeah. the Billy Martin years. But and then uh, also, what was it, what was it like being somebody who follows the Jets, and then the Jets go from playing at Shea Stadium. Uh, Terry Bradshaw's final game was actually, I think, the final game at Shea Stadium, and then they move in to the Meadowlands with the Giants. So now they're playing at Giants Stadium. So it's like the New York Jets face so and so at Giants Stadium. And it's been like that for 35 years now that they just share a stadium. And that is there still is there any outcry or or before? Because I went to MetLife uh, about a year and a half ago, and obviously it's a really nice stadium. It's sterile. I mean, there's nothing to write home about. Oh, it's sterile. But yeah. it's just it's it's okay. It's fine. It's a nice stadium. That's it. There's nothing like no frills about it. But like, was there an opportunity for possibly the Giants or the Jets to say, you know what? Let's stop sharing a stadium. Let's stop doing this. Let's go out to the, you know, uh, let's go out to or towards kind of like where the uh, the Islanders used to play uh, out there on the island or some somewhere yeah, else. But it just seemed that they just combined them, and it doesn't seem like anybody has that much of an issue. Or do they? No, they did at the beginning, and so did I. And I remember going there, and it was weird. And it was Giant Stadium, and the Jets played there. So the best that they did for the Jets when they were playing there was kind of putting up a banner or, or something else where it just you kind of knew that, yeah, the Jets were playing, but it was Giant Stadium. So I wanted them out of there. I wanted their own place. And it looked for like a little while like they were going to get that place in, um, in Manhattan, and it didn't happen. So then when they finally did share another stadium, when they finally upgraded the old place, they at least decided to, you know, share it like be really 50 50 so like when the giants are playing and now it's easy digitally you just everything's giants digitally and then when it's the jets everything's jets digitally but it's metlife otherwise and at least it's not giant stadium yeah so it's not as bad now because of that but it was really bad back in the early days and i didn't like it and a lot of jets fans didn't like it it was a pain because i i was where i was staying because uh, it was browns jets monday night football game last year and it was we were staying in Jamaica <laughs> and having to get to East Rutherford is like four or five trains. And yeah. if you're somebody but I understand why Islander fans from like Manhattan or Long Island, unless they had a direct line after work, didn't want to take a train to, to the game. They all drove because changing at Jamaica is a pain in the ass and nobody wants to do it. That way, uh, just un- yeah, taking uh, changing that train, and then yeah, and then especially going towards uh, Shea Stadium. And uh, oh, speaking of stadiums, I wanted to bring that up as we get, uh, kind of segue back towards baseball. Is uh, I was talking to you about when I was going to City Field last year, and yeah. that's the one thing that I noticed with these ballparks. I'm a, I'm a bar- ballpark enthusiast. I've been to probably close to half of them in baseball, maybe a couple that have been, since been torn down now, but. What you saw in those days of the jewel box ballparks, the Ebbets Fields, the Baker Bowls, yeah. the uh, a lot of those in that era, then they got replaced by the concrete donuts, the big ashtrays, the whether you're standing at home plate at Riverfront Stadium, Three River Stadium, Veterans Stadium, Bush Stadium, you couldn't tell the difference. It was the same dimensions, the same AstroTurf, the same uh, capacity. And by the way, they, they're playing football tomorrow, so we got to clear the field. And then Billy Graham's having a crusade the next day, followed by Led Zeppelin playing uh, the next day. 
And it was just these multi-purpose ballparks. Then you have Baltimore comes up in, in 92, and then all the ballparks after that, Cleveland, uh, Colorado, Texas, they all kind of followed that mindset, and they continue that. So when I went to uh, and Shea Stadium was one of those early ashtrays where the the uh, the outfield was taken out because they were so close to LaGuardia, but it was essentially it was one of those stadiums. But I went to City Field and I was I really wasn't expecting much. And again, like MetLife, nice stadium. I like the rotunda, but I it, it just a lot of these they seem like they have a lot of character, but they just don't seem to be. They're not. They're, they don't blow me away anymore. It's just it's a nice place, but there's no character that really drives it out. Like for example, like PNC Park in Pittsburgh. I love the fact that they have the skyline in the background. Right. It's okay. They have the apple. They have the the bridge, which is kind of cool. But that's about it. It really just didn't. City Field has just never blown me away with that. And I'm sure that's a lot of people kind of feel that way about Yankee Stadium too. Well, they feel like City's better than Yankee for sure. Even yeah. Yankee fans agree with that. And it's not because of food. It's just because I think it's the brick ballpark. Yes, it looks like Ebbets Field. And at night, it really looks spectacular the way they light it. So there is that. Uh, sight lines are good. But I get what you're saying. At the beginning, it was really bad when they didn't have any statues. And they, you know, other than the Rotunda and Jackie Robinson. And it's like, hey, no slight to Jackie Robinson, but we got to mess this place up. And they started doing it a little bit for years after that. And they kept excluding the Seaver statue. And I even ran across one of the, at, um, at the National Collectors Convention, because I used to do a lot of shows there. I ran into the guy who made all the iron statues for everybody. You know, like Minnesota's got like three or four, as an example, out front of their stadium. And I said, hey, um, with City Field, are they getting one of like Seaver or anybody? And he goes, I asked and they didn't want. And it's not until this year now that they're finally going to have a Seaver statue, which is crazy to me because I wrote about it all the way back then because the first game at City Field was a college game. And I went there. I think it was a St. John's game. But I went there just to see the place. And it was completely sterile of Mets stuff. And it really bothered me. And it bothered the fans. And so they did start to fix it. And it's much better now, but it's still not there. It's sort of like it's still a work in progress. But I think after Stephen Cohen, I'm going to say after a year or two, if you go back, I will bet you you will have a different impression. Any relation? No, I wish. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the thing with these ballparks is that they're all trying to be retro, and they're all trying to have this feeling of oh, it's like the 1920s, like the dead ball era ballparks. And no, no, this wasn't this wasn't that. You know what this was? This is because Fred Wilpon went to high school with Sandy Koufax. That's all this is about. Mm. And I think they may have even played on the same high school baseball team. And he was friends with Sandy. Sandy would show up at, you know, at spring training once in a while, talk to the pitchers a little bit. And that's all this was. This is just Fred Wilpon building his childhood dream ballpark. That's it. Yeah. And you kind of see that in other markets where they replaced stadiums that they probably could have made classic ballparks. And they built these state-of-the-art sterile shopping malls like – Miller Park in Milwaukee, I was there, what, about 10 years ago. And it's nice. Again, nice. It's clean. You, I haven't been there, but you're not selling me on it now. So, Well, it's, it, what's inter- well, well, what I liked about it was it was, uh, it was Cubs Brewers, and it was in early April. So all those drunken Cubs fans were coming up from Milwaukee, oh, yeah. and it's a Friday night. They're tailgating. They're playing cornhole. Like, the atmosphere is, like, almost second to none. It's just the right. ballpark. You realize everybody in the I, – I was sitting there. I was with my dad, 
And I'm watching, and like Prince Fielder, Ryan Braun are out there, and I'm looking around, like, oh my God, everybody's drunk right now. <laughs> everybody's trashed. And that was, but that was the charm of Milwaukee. But the ballpark, I liked it for what it was. It seemed like I was going to a shopping mall. But as far as ballparks, eh, you know, it was like one to knock off the list. The other one was Comerica Park. Tiger right. Stadium was a classic ballpark. Guys liked playing in it because you could hit, you get a three hundred foot shot and it goes into the upper deck. And, and yeah. but center field had the flagpole and it was a four hundred forty five foot poke. And yes, it was falling apart and they had ownership changes between Domino's and Little Caesars around that time. But just like with Bud Selig in Milwaukee, they wanted their ballpark. They wanted their state of the art place. So therefore, right. when Illich did not want that dump, quote unquote, dump of a ballpark there on at, at Trumbull in Michigan, and wanted his downtown ballpark. So they bring in Comerica, which has been there twenty years, and again, nice park. That's it. Like I, I, I never left it. there and said, "Wow, what an amazing place to see a baseball." No, game. I mean you're right. I liked it. I was there for an outdoor hockey game, an AHL game, but I got to see it. And we came. We got ushered in as media through like the executive offices, and I'll say they did pay good homage to the players of the past. Me being a Jewish guy, Hank Greenberg was was out there, and that made me feel good because we all grew up Hank Greenberg fans, even though he was way before any of our times. But, our, you know, my dad told me about him. Everybody told me about him, right? So so I felt like they, they did a good job of, of doing that. I felt like it, it had decent sight lines. I felt like the food was good there. But you're right, overall, yeah. It's that, and that's what's a, what I found interesting about the – the nostalgia with the old ballparks is that so in Cleveland they've had progressive field since 94 Jacobs field and up until about 13 years ago but the old stadium we look upon it now fondly but it was a dump and that was kind of one of the things I always heard about about Shea Stadium Shea Stadium from what I heard was it's a dump but it's our dump yes it's the exact same thing municipal seemed like it was exactly the same as Shea the only thing was in the 80s, Shea got an upgrade and they got rid of the wooden seats and they put in the plastic seats. And actually, because the wooden ones were just so beaten up, it was an upgrade. Even though it may not have been an upgrade in nostalgia, it was an upgrade to sit there for 10, 15 innings. So at least there was that. Yeah. <laughs> and the field was nice. The field, they always did a nice job on the field at Shea. So at least, and I don't know how it was at Municipal. I never went to Municipal, but I've been to... Um, to your current one and Jacobs and and I liked it, but the field is always important too. Yeah, the the old stadium was of course yeah you're talking about sight lines it, they're terrible and it was like that yeah. at all those kind of ballparks those big time places and you probably saw that the games you went to Veteran Stadium is that but I'll but I'll say this here's what I will say because those are improvements and I really do like Citizens Bank Park I really like that ballpark I do too and I go there quite a bit. And what, what I like about, and a lot of those have been replaced, the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati uh, was a big-time upgrade from Riverfront, and I was at Riverfront. I didn't go to Three Rivers, but I've been to PNC several times, fantastic place, uh, and Heinz yeah. Field as well. Um, but one of the things that I really love is about the location of ballparks that you mentioned about City Field is that you have to, you have to get off uh, at because uh, you're getting off at Willits Point and a couple of other uh, train stops, depending on where you are, you might have to make two or three uh, different stops if you're a Mets fan yeah. trying to get across town. But in Philadelphia, what they did is that their ballpark is technically in Philadelphia proper, 
but it's south of the city, and every one of their teams plays on the same property. And I love that as somebody in Cleveland, for example, where Brown Stadium, First Energy Stadium, is right on the lake, and there's no parking anywhere near the place. You have to park a mile away, and especially if you're drunk and, and tailgating, it, it really may as well seem like you're taking the Oregon Trail. Then they have the yeah. other ballparks towards downtown, but again, not much parking. Philadelphia, in my opinion, did things correctly by putting everything there in that one spot. So you're, if you're going to see the Eagles play, you're playing next to where the Flyers and the Sixers play, and then right up there is where the Phillies play, and then they have that little entertainment complex not far from the airport, right off 95. It, it just seemed like they did it properly where a lot of other cities just, it's like they buy a plot of land and say, hey, well, let's just build it here. No, I, I get it, and I do think you're right. And, you know, Xfinity Live wasn't always there, but it's been there for a while now. But the issue there is they do get some bad traffic because if you have multiple events going on and a lot of people, and let's say it's it starts or ends with the Eagles, those Eagles fans don't want to leave, right? So if I come in to cover a Flyers game, half the ballpark is still those Eagles fans that are tailgating after the game. And so you do get a little bit of that. But I do think otherwise it's good, and Citizens Bank is good. The only bad part about Citizens Bank is if you're stuck out at – there's one point in the outfield where you're literally limited to just one stand to eat from because it's really excommunicated from like the rest of the stadium. You have to leave from a different way. It's almost like Dodger stadium, except my one time at Chavez ravine, you know, we were in the, uh, in the upper deck and I didn't realize that they would lock you in the upper deck and not allow you to go down to the other areas to just check out the shops, check out yep. anything. No, you have to stay up there. It's like, what? Like, that was ridiculous to me, too. It's classism. Yeah, I, I had that happen. Yeah. I was there. It was Vin Scully's last game that he was calling at Dodger Stadium, where uh, Charlie Culberson hit a walk-off home run, and the okay. Dodgers won the uh, NL West. And it was so cool. But, yeah, it was strange finding that out, where you can, if you're in the upper deck at Dodger Stadium, you can only go one level down. They won't let you further. And it really is kind of like, oh, hey, you got the cheap seats. You stay in the cheap seats. And everybody else, like, if you want to see – celebrities like Bob Newhart or Alyssa Milano walking around. Well, too bad. you got to get the better tickets to go down there. So it was really interesting. Um, I want to go over just a a couple of of things uh, and and talk about your books as well. But uh, I wanted to ask you about, with following the Mets back in the day, and I asked this to Bill Madden in my podcast uh, before, which was the changeover from the Steinbrenner years of where he takes over the team the Yankees, yes, there's controversy, but they win a couple of World Series. They're very competitive all the way up until the early 80s. But then you were, there was the fallout with Reggie Jackson, the hiring and firing of uh, Billy Martin, uh, signing Dave Winfield, and then all of a sudden you know, he's Mr. May. He's not Mr. October. He doesn't show up. They put a you know, yep. Steinbrenner eventually gets banned from the game because because he was uh, having uh, private investigators follow Dave Winfield around. Winfield did kill a pigeon in in the outfield. That was bad PR too. And then you had uh, also at the Yankees that they just started falling in love for these just DHs and outfielders. Like you had Don Mattingly, but then outside of that, that I mean, you're drafting John Elway and seeing if he's going to be your right field of the future. They bring in Deion yeah. Sanders for a little bit. They brought in uh, guys like Kevin Moss was one of them that they thought was the next big thing. Jesse but Barfield, Danny Tartable. Ricky Henderson was horrible because yep. he had all these micro tears 
in his hamstring. And, and me as a younger guy, I was like, I don't believe him. And you know what? We kind of learned later on that Ricky played when Ricky felt like playing yep. too, right? Yeah, and he he thought he wanted to play with the Bronx and uh, apparently didn't and then eventually wins an MVP with Oakland. But getting back right. to the changeover, then all of a sudden, almost at the same time, the Mets start to figure it out with their uh, with their drafting and their scouting and that they get guys like they find Gooden and he's he's up there as a rookie sensation at 19 rookie of the year Daryl Strawberry they start bringing in all these different guys and it just starts culminating from about 83 all the way through the, the 89 season they pick up Gary Carter they pick up uh, uh, Keith Hernandez um they they um, eventually Howard Johnson joins. Uh, they get guys like Mookie Wilson and Lenny Dykstra and up from the organization. So you start seeing this this plan that was really coming to fruition. It took a couple of years, and it just culminated in that '86 season. That anywhere you go, it seems like in Queens, you're going to be reminded of that '86 team. Yeah, there's no question. And again, they had. Some, you know, they had a nice run in uh, 2000, but I never expected them to win. 15, I was there for the Harvey game. That was interesting, <laughs> as we all know how oh, that yeah. turned out. But, um, but yeah, I, it's just, yeah, the 86 team was different. In 84, I was at the University of Houston, and I remember there was a guy in my dorm who was a Cubs fan, devout Cubs fan. And, you know, the Cubs were great at the time. The Mets weren't. And, I remember there was a game of the week on on NBC and it was one of Gooden's early games and he had never heard of Gooden. And I don't know if I bet him on it or what I did, but I'm like, we're going to, we're going to watch this game. And he's sitting down and it might've been like Gooden Sutcliffe. It was a good match, whoever it was. And, and so of course he's thinking, Oh, it's the Mets. My team's going to wipe the floor of them. And after, you know, a couple of innings of seeing Gooden's, you know, rising fastball, the, the curveball that would buckle your knees. He just looked at me like, wow. And that was like a proud moment as a Met fan because they were just getting done with being crap. And you could see that there was some things on the horizon and Gooden was possibly the best pitcher in baseball that, you know, going to be the best pitcher in baseball at least. Either way. But it was a proud moment. Yeah, and you started seeing that kind of come together eventually where uh, like Gooden is in the All-Star game in 84 and him and Valenzuela just blow the entire American League out of the water at that time. And you were seeing this. And, of course, I think obviously with Dwight Gooden's personal problems and the cocaine and, and everything that was going on at that time, but Davey Johnson, boy, did he overwork his arm. He shouldn't have thrown – he had to have thrown the most innings out of anybody in his first five years and anyone ever, right? Yeah, I want to say one year he was up around 276 or something. No question about it. Um, but it's not like he threw him in the rain or anything like, you know, Buck Showalter with David Cohn. It wasn't anything no. like that. So nobody was thinking that really at the time, to be honest. They weren't. Uh yeah, that team was just, you know, those guys were were special. They unfortunately thought they were too special, and that, that be, eventually became their downfall. Uh, Carter and Hernandez, they never would win without them. Those were two of the biggest building blocks you could ever get for any championship team. And then a lot of other good things happened. Like in the book that you mentioned, Numbers Don't Lie, you know, Howard Johnson uh, wrote the forward, and the, the best story that he had said was, during the Buckner game, they always felt like they were going to win, even when it was getting down to the nitty gritty. And even in the house that I was in, I was at my girlfriend's house. Everybody went to sleep. 
my girlfriend went to sleep, who's now my wife. Uh, everybody said, my even she, my girlfriend, who's a devout Met fan, she grew up in Douglas and Queens, so she's right there, said, shut off the TV, you're torturing yourself. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, this team always comes back. And I woke her up when it when it happened, you know? And so they they win. But Johnson said they never worried about the next day because everybody forgets there was a next game and they never worried about it. They knew they were going to win. They knew they had their number. That was as cocky or whatever the kind of confident team they were. So you were, you know, as a fan, you were just, that season was one of the only seasons in the history of the Mets where you didn't have to worry about them losing to the Cardinals. What's going to happen the last two weeks of the season, trying to figure out the pitching the last three weeks of the season None of that was a worry. The only worry was how many games were they going to win. Yeah, and and especially, I mean, their buzzsaw came in 86 and during that uh, NLCS yeah. with Mike Scott. Phillies, yeah, the, right. Oh, Mike Scott. The Phillies were in second place. They were out like 20 games. Like yeah. it was just a blowout. Now, Mike Scott, I've got a good Mike Scott story. So one of the, the, one of the first times um, I ever took my wife to a, a, a Mets game, it's Sid Fernandez pitching against Mike Scott. And she had binoculars. I said, hey, let me borrow those binoculars because Mike Scott, <laughs> I told her, Mike Scott is a scuffer and I'm going to catch this guy scuffing. And for like an inning to an inning and a half when he was pitching, I was on his glove, right? And at one point I said, he is scuffing right now. And the umpire checked his glove and he didn't come away with anything. So who knows what Scott did with the, uh, with the sandpaper. But I actually got to see him scuffing at a game because I had low seats and I had binoculars, and this was in, in 86 also. And so that was the secret to Mike Scott's success. He was a decent pitcher. If He was a, he was a Met before that, if you remember. Mm -hmm. and, but, yeah, that was what gave him the edge. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think it was in that series, Gary Carter just asked to see the ball. And uh, yeah. uh, he, he, like, because Gary Carter couldn't even catch up. And he was somebody who can hit for contact if he needed to. Oh, yeah. Just, uh, but yeah, but that was the one thing that I, I heard from guys like uh, Dykstra and a couple others that they, and I think Strawberry even said it, they did not want to go to game seven of that NLCS because they were facing Mike Scott. So they ended right. up coming back. They had the, uh, the Billy Hatcher home run off the foul pole, and then they, then they scored three in extra innings, and then Houston scored two. They struck out uh, Jesse Roscoe, strikes out uh, Kevin Bass. And yeah, I mean, you got to remember, they got past Nolan Ryan. I mean, yeah. Not like Nolan Ryan was pitching bad. No, and and getting to that World Series, and that's what's interesting is weren't they down 0-2, and then they go to mm -hmm. and they were down 0-2 at home, right? Yeah. And they go to Boston. They're facing Oil Can Boyd, who was on. I think he was on. Did he say he admitted he was high every game that he pitched that season? You never know. I interviewed Oil Can for one of my books, and I think every day was a different Oil Can Boyd. So yeah. I don't know if you can believe everything he says. So then Dykstra hits the leadoff home run and changes the series. And it, it goes from there all the way to that game game six. Henderson hits the home run off Aguilera. And then and I hated the fact that he did this, the showboating around the bases. God. Like he God, did against the Angels just like two weeks earlier. Yes. But it was off of Donnie Moore, wasn't it? Donnie, Yeah, off Donnie Moore, who never recovered like mentally uh -huh. from that and ended up committing suicide a couple of years later. But, uh, yeah, Henderson hits that. And like you said, it just seemed like the Mets just never went away. Then was it uh, uh, Carter hits a, hits a base hit, Kevin Mitchell? 
Yeah, future MVP Kevin Mitchell, who they basically got rid of for I don't know who was it Kevin McReynolds or something. Um, I don't know. Oh, I don't remember who was in the Mitchell deal. It wasn't McReynolds though. But it was it was just amazing how they just didn't give up, and then they just put it on in that seventh game. And and what was interesting about that World Series was there was that feeling, and you probably felt this way, that that team was going to be a dynasty, that for the next you know five to six years, you know, just pencil the Mets in for next year. They're they're winning the World Series next year and the year after. Well, they blow. They don't. They they had a bad down season in '87. They come back in '88. Well, I remember when your best players. Your best pitcher is in rehab. He doesn't go to the uh, parade. He's not at the parade. He starts the season in rehab. That's not a good start to the 87 season. No. No. And, and then, yeah. And then, so it's a little bit of a down year, but then you get guys like David Cohn who, who make a really big impact on that season. They go into 88 and then they're thinking, oh, we're coming back. And there's no, there's no way we're losing to that Dodger team. Who do they have on that team? They got, uh, you know, uh, uh, they have Kirk Gibson, who's who's hurt. His knees are bothering him, and you know, yeah, they got Hershiser. He's pretty good, but we'll just manhandle this team, and, and they didn't. No, I mean, hold on, hold on. Uh, you were right, by the way. It was McReynolds. I forgot that Mitchell went to the, uh, the Padres. So good call on your part. There were other players involved in that deal too, but I'd forgotten that that's how they got McReynolds. So good for you on that. Um, no, I mean, look, Hershiser at that time was amazing. Like he really was. He was one of the best pitchers in the league. That Mike Sosha homer, I mean, mm-hmm. it's still in my mind. I don't know how he hit that off a of good uh, fastball, I guess, was a little up. I think it was like an inside pitch, too. I, I was stunned when it happened because Sosha wasn't a big home run guy. But the Dodgers were a good team. Like, it wasn't – but the key thing for that one is I think that was the year that Bob Ojeda was not available because he cut off the tip of his fingers uh, working the hedge clippers in his yard, you know, the electric clippers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they had him available because he chopped off part of his feather. So that was a bad omen, too, for that. And that just, they never really recovered from that. And this one I want to get into next about the Mets was that, was it the, I forgot who had it, was it the worst team money can buy, where they put that team together no. in the early 90s, where they, they got in Vince Coleman, they got uh, Bobby Bonilla, of course, which that, you know, his second time with the Mets is even more hilarious. Uh, Brett yep. Saberhagen, didn't he, Saberhagen, was it he threw, uh, sprayed bleach on reporters or he threw a firecracker at fans or something? Or it was like something along well, the those Both lines. Coleman were up to the bleach and firecracker thing. Coleman was just a bad guy. Saberhagen wasn't. I think Saberhagen got caught up with it. But Saberhagen was a decent Mets pitcher. He was. And But Coleman, there was nothing there. And he was just a complete jerk. Uh, I think Al Harrison was the GM. Uh, but, yeah, it was the worst team money could buy. Uh, it was just awful because they'd spent all that money. I think Eddie Murray was on that team. Yep, yes, he was. Uh, and Eddie Murray could be a real jerk, as everybody knows. Oh, yes, Great we know player. here. Oh, yeah. Great ball player. Um, oh, by the way, I'm glad I was able to mention Keith Hernandez and not get a diatribe from you like we would our friend Rick Morris when he was in India. Oh, yeah. Um, Rick, oh, yeah. Rick's always talking about Keith Hernandez and his lone home run that he hit. Uh, and I saw him dancing. I saw him dancing, and he had a calf injury. I, I, I still do that story. <laughs> He was dancing on the news. Anyhow, um, but yeah, they that team was – there were some hopes when they signed those guys. And then when you saw that the mix of guys was horrific and then Vince Coleman wasn't Vince Coleman anymore uh, off of AstroTurf, 
it was a big change, man. And that was downtime, really downtime. That was a downtime, and then eventually they they were able to kind of get better. And it, it took that Piazza trade when they when the Florida Marlins just basically, hey, we won the World Series. We're getting rid of everybody. Uh, well, they, they got slightly better. There at least was you mentioned Randy Hundley earlier, and at least there was Todd Hundley. If you remember, he, he set the record for catcher for home runs by a catcher. Um, so at least there was that fleeting moment until afterwards you realize, oh, he was probably on steroids. But uh, <laughs> I at least watched all that and tracked all that. I've got an autographed baseball from Todd Hundley. Uh, it was an exciting moment. And so at least that's where it started to maybe give you some hope things were starting to get better. But then when Piazza came in, if you remember, they didn't know what to do with Hundley. It yep. was like, uh-oh. What do we do? We're going to make him an outfielder. That didn't work. We're going to make him a first baseman. That didn't work. And, and then Todd Hundley was gone. But they had to do that deal because I remember listening to FAM when it, when it was announced, and it was it was unbelievable. And we all knew when he went to the Marlins, that was a holding place. It was basically a holding yeah. tank for him. Yeah, it was like, it was like and, watching Rasheed Wallace play for the Atlanta Hawks for a game or uh, when Reggie Jackson played for the Orioles for a season. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, what Yzmero Petit, I think, was in that deal, and he's still pitching. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, pretty sure he's the guy uh, as one of them. Well, they, they but, and anyhow, that and that team, by the way, also people forget about that that uh, the middle of the uh, the lineup was obviously pretty good, and they eventually, you know, it was before Delgado got there, and a lot of some of those other guys, but. You were talk. You talk about a Gold Glover at every position in the infield. You had Olerud at first, Alfonso yeah. at second, Ray Ordonez at short, Robin Ventura at third base, and, he, and of course Ventura hits that grand slam single in '99. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was it. Was a good team, uh, and then it kept going forward. What I wanted to ask you with Bobby Valentine as the manager. Now I heard this. I, a lot of people talk about after 9/11 and what happened. And the the game against the Braves and Piazza hits the big home run. It brings New York together. But right. was there a little bit of a marketing ploy by the Mets there by going like, hey, because Piazza's home run, we're going to be New York's uh, baseball team from now on? Like I, I heard no, something no, about no. that, but I didn't know if it no. was true or not. No, there really wasn't. And actually, um, and this is no slight to Joe Torre, but actually Bobby Valentine did so much out in the community, so much like probably more than any other New York athlete, to be honest. So, or, you know, New York sports guy. So he, he was tremendous in that. And I think that's maybe where that probably came from even more than the Homer, but no, but that infield, um, that infield was one of the best of all time. Uh, in the book that you mentioned, numbers don't lie. We, we talk about it in there. And honestly, other than maybe, you know, the Reds, uh, it's one of the best infields ever. Well, the Indi- the Indians in 2000, I believe, should have had a gold glover at every position on the infield because Travis Fryman won a gold glove. They had Omar Vizquel right. and Robbie Alomar. And their first baseman, yeah. who was really good, and you remember him, was David Segee. And he was, yeah. a, he was a pretty damn good first baseman, but they didn't give it to him that year. They gave it to Rafael Palmero, the gold glove, even though he spent yeah. the entire year as a DH. <laughs> I think he played like 30 games at first base, and they gave it to him. And Participation trophy. Point. Yeah. And, and Segui's a pretty good guy, too. In, in one of my books, Strike Three, I actually had a long conversation with Segui because he did take steroids, 
And we did have a debate about it, not in the book, but after he gave me the interview. Uh, He told me his point of view. Yeah, he told me his point of view. I told him my point of view. Um, We, you know, it was very cordial. I got what he was saying, but he kind of identified me as a baseball purist Mm. uh, because I don't like the guys who took steroids. I still don't. I don't blame them for not getting voted into the Hall of Fame. I I support all of that. But I understood where Sagi was coming from because he was a guy that could field really well. I mean, he was a Met too. He could feel really well. He had a good bat, but he didn't have a lot of power. So he was trying to, you know, add some more power. Was there? There was always there was rumors, but they weren't strong about Piazza. There, there was nothing there, right? He was just always there was nothing strong. there that was ever substantiated. I interviewed Piazza. I covered for a while. I covered out of Philly, uh, so I got to interview Piazza. I didn't see anything irregular, even the way he looked. I didn't see, you know, some guys would say, well, what about back knee? And I'm like, you know, he didn't have it like some other guys. I saw many other players that that had a lot of other warning signs way before I would think Piazza did. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't, but he just never got caught. Yeah. So whatever. Well, and actually, by the way, that segues into what I want to talk about next. So you have a book, Baseball's Best Rookies, and Piazza in 93 had one of the great rookie seasons where he came in there as a catcher where you're coming off the years of Mike Sosha back there. You, uh, I think they, I think they even had Lance Parrish was uh, catching for him a little bit too. And this guy, and this guy who was just barely thought of and was almost drafted as a favor to, uh, by Tommy Lasorda, all the, all of a sudden comes up and plays that first rookie season. Like he's been in the league 10 years. And so you have Piazza, who had a great rookie season. Another Met, of course, uh, Pete Alonzo. Uh, we lost him uh, actually yesterday or when we're recording this is Dick Allen, also had an amazing rookie season. Talk a little bit about yeah. some of those top rookies, the ones I mentioned and others as well, uh, uh, that yeah. you you've kind of feature in the book. Some of those that just had great seasons where as soon as they joined the league, they knew exactly what to do. And we have some that didn't have such great careers, uh, Joe Charbonneau in the book. Yes. Because I was fascinated. I was fascinated about him as a kid when he um, took off a tattoo with a razor blade. That got my attention. I remember reading about that in Sports Illustrated. Super Joe. I, I actually hung out with him. It was about two years ago. I saw him at a bar, and my my girlfriend, now my wife, we, we were sitting there, and uh, I said, you, you know who that is, right? And she's like, who? I'm like, that's Joe Charbonneau. She's like, are you kidding me? And he had a had a couple of let's say he had a couple of Pepsis in him, and but he was just such a great guy. Sixty five years old, he has abs. He's in amazing shape yeah. now. But in those days, he just couldn't stay on the field and did all the goofy things. Yeah, he colored his hair. He was opening up beer bottles with his eye socket yep. and everything. But yeah. but it, it, you think about in Cleveland in nineteen eighty, there was no, there really wasn't anything to write home about with the baseball team. So it was good to have somebody you can kind of root for. But so yeah, you had people like Charbonneau and Mark Fidrich who were kind of like one-year wonders. Then you had others who had really good uh, rookie seasons that you thought they were going to be Hall of Famers, and they put together good good careers, but not Hall of Famers like Fred Lynn. Yeah, and and so yeah, um, Lynn is in there. We I had a great conversation with him. Uh, Piazza had a great conversation with him. He's in there, but he did talk about Philadelphia a lot because that was his early years. I don't live too far. I'm about eh, 40 minutes from where he grew up, and in, I'm in Jersey, but he was in um, in Pennsylvania in Phoenixville, and his dad's got the car dealership. But he he would talk. He talked about the Phillies a lot for that. Um, Mike Trout. I got an interview with Mike Trout. 
Trout's in there. We also ranked those rookie seasons. Derek Jeter's in there. Uh, but Scott Williamson's in there. Oh, yeah. You know, like, we, you know, we, we mixed it up. I, I remember speaking to Dimitri Young about Scott Williamson, and, and he told me some really great things. Like, you know, you never want to – the one thing Gooden told me, too, and Gooden is, is prominently featured in the book, not because I'm a Met fan, but because he told me one thing. At the time, I met him in Cleveland at the um, Sports Collectors Convention. There was, like, a Steiner party. And he told me that that award meant more to him than any of his other awards because you can only do it once. Like that's it. You get one shot at the Rookie of the Year award. Yeah. And so that really meant that much to him. And so I was like, wow, that really encapsulates everything I was thinking about for this book. But a lot of guys don't know where they put the award. They forget what happened. I think Lynn was one that told me he forgot where, where he put it, didn't know what happened to it. Uh, a lot of people can't tell you what it looks like. Um, because they don't, baseball does a bad job of really promoting it other than who wins it. You don't really get to see it, uh, very much. So there's, there's some, you know, intrigue about it. Unfortunately with Alonzo, I couldn't get him in the book because I had to hand in everything before the vote came in last year. And this was our update to it. The book originally came out in like 2012 or 13 and I couldn't add him. I couldn't add Alonzo, but I added Bryce Harper because he wasn't in the original. And and we added Aaron Judge and some other players. Uh, so Otani got added. But I wanted to add Alonzo, but it's like, what if he didn't win? What if there was yeah. some kind of crazy vote and the publisher published the book and so you can't do that, right? And then the book, the update comes out during the pandemic. <laughs> of course, of <laughs> so, course. <laughs> like two weeks before the pandemic, I had two books come out. Um, so it's just, you know, it's a crazy world and you just never know. The marketing with some of these rookies where they come up and especially for towns that they're, they're just starved for rookies. And I, but then there's others. That, what's that? One sec. I don't, I hate, I don't, I, I know I'm going to make you edit. I only got like five minutes left. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, that, that works. Um, but, uh, cause I want to ask you about the Dodgers cause you were talking about Piazza, but they had that run in the mid nineties where I believe it was Karos they had Piazza, then it was Mondesi, Nomo, yeah. and Todd Hollinsworth. Yeah. And it kind of seemed like by the time they got to Hollinsworth, they're like, well, let's just keep giving Dodgers. But they never, but you see those rookies where sometimes that they help the team or sometimes they just have a really good season. But then you have somebody also a Dodger in Fernando Valenzuela that that Fernando mania in 1981 just encapsulated baseball and encapsulated LA where. He wasn't just a great rookie. He was he was a great pitcher at that time, and he won the Cy Young and the Rookie of the Year and won a World Series with them at that time, too. All right, so now you hit a sore point um, because Fernando, <laughs> stole, Fernando Mania stole a Cy Young for Seaver when Seaver had an, a, a great year with the White Sox. He was about 15 and 11, and the only thing that I felt like Fernando did better than Seaver that year was had he had some more shutouts, um, but that would have been Seaver's fourth. And, and he never got that. So that was a... Uh, oh, he was with Cincinnati point. at the time. Yeah, that's right. No, no, not Cincinnati. Oh, no, Cincy. Sorry. Yeah, why did I say the White Sox? Yeah, when he was with Cincy, that wasn't the 15-11 year. But he had, I want to say, 21 wins. I don't know. It was something something like that. And and But Fernando Mania stole that out. And uh, and I actually went to a game. I tried to get in in 86, 85 or 86. Fernando was pitching at Shea. And it was one of the only games that I could not get into Shea Stadium for. That's how big Fernando Mania was. Couldn't get a ticket. Just couldn't find a mm -hmm. ticket. 
couldn't bribe your way into that place. Complete utter sellout. So Fernando Mania was big, no question. And Fred Claire wrote the uh, wrote the intro, the forward, and and he's tremendous. He had been there since the Brooklyn Dodger days. Fred's still around writing. He's amazing, an amazing guy. And the Dodgers own the Rookie of the Year. Like they just own it. Yeah, they they just somehow found a way to pump it out. And uh, I'm going to give you one more sore spot. Uh, I saw Matt Harvey during his rookie season, and I remember I went to a game. I saw him pitch at Citizens Bank Park, and he's throwing over 100 miles an hour to start. And I'm, like, nudging my girlfriend at the time, and I said, uh, this this guy's going to be one of the all-time greats. <laughs> I, yeah. I, boy, did I blow that one. But also, he, he didn't help his cause either. No, no, he he didn't, and and he didn't know how to pitch. He just knew he just had a great fastball. When he didn't have the fastball anymore, that's what really uh, would hurt him. But I actually, in his rookie season, saw him pitch at um, Great American, of all places. But I did see him at Citizens Bank too. But I did go on a road game. We saw him at Great American, and he pitched great, even in the rain. He was like that was a rainy day. Um, but yeah, uh, Matt Harvey. I don't feel bad for him. And I don't want him back on the Mets simply because I felt like he squandered his career and he just didn't realize it until it was too late. He had to learn how to pitch. He was he was a thrower. Yeah. And, and it's weird to say that to somebody who's not a baseball fan to say that this guy's a thrower and not a pitcher. And they say, well, aren't they all pitchers? It's like, eh, semantics. So, nah. hey, Russ, so uh, I know you got to go. Where where can we find you online and where can we find some of your work? Yeah, so um, you can find a lot of my writing at, at Sportsology on Twitter, sportsology.com. Full Press Baseball. Uh, if you want any of those books like signed, just DM me on Twitter at Sportsology, Instagram at Sportsology. So all those different places. My work ends up in a lot of different places. I've written nine books. There's a tenth in the works, but since the pandemic, we've slowed it down. It'll be a New York Jets book, and it might kill me, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, yeah, with the way they've been playing this year, uh, yeah, they've been. Uh... Been cutting a lot of people off at the knees there, but uh, hey, Russ, thanks yep. so much. We'll have to do this again sometime. Maybe I'll bring Rick on board, and we'll uh, yeah, we'll, that'd be great. We'll we'll gab back and forth. We'll go back in old history. We'll talk some NHL next time as well. Sounds good. Thanks, Russ. Thank you so much for doing this.